Welcome to a new episode of the Influence Factor by the Influencer Marketing Factory. Today with me, we have Ravi Kurani, that is the founder of Sutro. If this is your first episode, please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify so that you can be updated on new episodes every single Wednesday morning. Enjoy the show. Hey, Ravi, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing good, man. How are you? It's good. It's been a long week. I've been talking with many people and I don't know why, but seems the same for everyone. It's been, you know, <laughs> a beginning of the year, a bit different than others. It's a good busy, uh, you know, so cannot complain, but uh, absolutely I've been feeling that. And also in New York, we have been like fantastic weather and then cloudy again. It's, it's that, you know, it doesn't help mentally, I would say, to go from one day that is super sunny outside. You want to go out and then yeah. that day is raining like crazy. And like, so, you know, it's, but it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> cannot complain. Cannot complain. So, um, right, why, why don't we start like just, um, at the beginning as I do with all the different guests, you know, uh, introduce a bit about yourself, uh, like who you are, a bit more about your story in when we met, you told me already, and I think it's really, you know, fascinating story and interesting to share. So why don't we start from there? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, so my name is Ravi Karani. Um, my story actually starts interestingly with my, my father, and mother who emigrated from India to the U.S. Um, we settled in sunny Southern California, uh, probably about 100 miles east of Los Angeles. So if you think of like Coachella, the desert, Palm Springs, there's a small city called Riverside. Um, so that's where we, we ended up growing up. And my dad um, actually had a master's in chemistry from India. And coming as an immigrant to the U.S. Uh, wasn't obviously able to find a job. And so he basically was um, a pool boy, right? He would drive around in a pickup truck and drive from home to home to home, uh, servicing swimming pools, putting in chemicals, cleaning up the, the, the leaves, you know, brushing the backyard until he went to a pool and spa supply store. And, you know, I think the owners wanted to take a lunch break or something like that. And usually what happens is people bring a sample of water into that pool store um, and you test the water with different, you know, reagents. You see the colors, you see what the chemistry is. And obviously, as a chemist, uh, the customer came back to the owners and was like, hey, that that new guy you had working back there really knows his chemistry. You know, who, who the heck is that new employee? And they were like, that's just our pool guy. You know, we didn't know that he knew what, what chemistry was. And, you know, lo and behold, my dad obviously came from India with the chemistry masters, and he grew that one store to 30 stores um, over the course of me growing up in elementary high school, um, which obviously was my summer and weekend jobs, right? Obviously growing a business, living underneath my my mom and dad, it was a family business. I was also a pool boy, right? I ended up managing a store in Huntington Beach, close to close to the Pacific in Los Angeles. And, you know, kind of fast forwarding that story, that's really what gave me the impetus for starting Sutra, right? There's a lot of different trends and tangents in between there. But um, the kind of initial idea was like, how do I take my dad's pool store and stick everything he knows into an application into a robot and then basically build a product for the swimming pool industry with larger implications to water because water is just really, really important um, across the board as well. And so that's kind of a, that's the um, short, short run of the story. Fascinating. Yeah. I love, love hearing these stories, you know, especially, uh, I mean, it's something that I relate to, like, you know, coming from another place. Uh, Going to the U.S. right with the with the idea right of, of of making like not just a living but actually creating a company, starting a business, seeing growing. Is there any any memory maybe when you were a kid, like again you know growing up with your dad in in this like 
from one store to Tori and, and so on. Is there any, any, I don't know, like any memory that maybe was your tipping point in your life uh, to understanding that something was changing there or anything that you want to share? You know, as, as probably people that work in retail know, um, there's just a certain level of grit of standing behind that counter and doing, doing customer service, right? Whether you work in a restaurant or you work in a store. Um, and so I think I, I kind of learned a lot of like intangible lessons in just running retail, right? Like making sure that things are clean, right? You have to make sure that everything is stocked. You have to make sure the prices are put a particular way. Um, running the cash register, right? How do you how do you upsell something when somebody's standing right in front of you? Um, and so a lot of these kind of you know tactics and techniques that I didn't even know I was learning um, come to really really important use when we build an e-commerce platform or when we're talking to influencers or when we're building messaging on the website, right? A lot of this stuff is kind of a digital version of retail that I ended up learning um, weirdly when I was working at the pool store. It makes sense. I mean, it's all soft skills, psychology, right? And it, that's why a lot of people that works in hospitality, sometimes they could be potentially like great marketers or salespeople because they talk with people all day long. They understand them better than people that maybe come from academia that work on a lot of theory, uh, but then don't know really how to maybe, you know, engage with them, right? So yeah, uh, that's absolutely interesting. And before we go uh, more in detail about, I'm going to ask you, right, more mm -hmm. about the product, but just in a few words, what, what is the product that, that you created? Like, what, what is the main, main feature? Yeah, the product is a robotic chemical sensor mm -hmm. that floats inside of a swimming pool, um, connects to an application, uh, iOS or Android, and tells you what your chemistry is and what chemicals you need to put into your water to fix it so that it's safe to swim in. Um, that's kind of the uh, really short description of what Sutro is. And, and okay, let, let's go into a bit more in detail because I asked this in previous episodes. For example, we had, uh, you know, uh, Jay Cars from Midday Squares that, you know, they, they started from, again, from a kitchen experimenting. Mm -hmm. And I asked them, like, how do how, how the heck do you even start a chocolate company, right? Uh, like, how, how do you do that? So I myself really fascinated by this type of story. So let me also ask you the same. Uh, how do you start with something like that? Because it's a physical product, so you need factories, you need IP, pretty sure that you have some sort of uh, either like, uh, um, you know, like something that uh, you have to register, like, you know, that, uh, that is only yours, right? And like, and, uh, you know, a path, and I don't know how does it work. So what is the first day on creating a product like that? Yeah, in interesting, really interesting question. Um the first thing you have to validate is is the market, right? Outside of building a crazy robot or, you know, manufacturing electronics, all this stuff, your biggest question you need to answer is, is somebody going to buy this, mm -hmm. right? And so what we ended up doing actually was, um, I still remember this, I think we were at a Google Startup Weekend uh, event in San Francisco. And we had done, I think it was like a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and we had kind of had a small group of people together Um and we said, how do we validate this with, with basically a $0 budget, right? We weren't going to spend money on Google AdWords. That was kind of the constraints of the, of the startup weekend. And so we ended up opening up a Nextdoor account. Um, and we, we opened up Google Maps alongside Nextdoor. And we said, where is a wealthy area around the Bay Area, right, around San Francisco? Um, Marin and San Rafael County in, in the north part of the Bay, a little bit more wealthier. Uh, we literally looked and Google Maps, and we could see pools in people's backyards. And so we opened up next door, and we started typing in, you know, 2345 John Street. Um, 
you know, sorry, this address is taken, 2346 John Street. Mm-hmm. Welcome to next door. Right. And so we were able to get into next door. Um, I think this is before Nextdoor was actually doing the whole postcard validation thing. Yeah. So we were able to get in. Um, and then the first thing we did was we just left a comment, right, on the Nextdoor platform. We said, hey, we just moved into the neighborhood. Um, we're first-time pool owners. And we don't know. Just like, what do you, what, what do you think, Nextdoor community? And everybody was like, hey, welcome to the neighborhood. I use a pool service company. I go to this particular pool store just down the street. Um, blah, 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 right? There's a bunch of responses. And we let it kind of simmer for about a day. Um, at the end of it, we came back and we said, hey, we saw this company in San Francisco that's making a robot um, that basically has a product to measure pool chemistry. What do you guys think of it, right? We didn't say, hey, we were the founders or any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And obviously a bunch of people were like, oh, this is crap. This doesn't make sense. You know, this is cool. And we ended up getting actually our first three signups from people clicking that link and leaving their email address on on this little landing page that we had. Um, and so I think, you know, if you kind of ask like, what is the, what is the Genesis story of how we first started to validate that? Um, those first three people came from our, our blanket next door message that we uh, faked an address in Marin to, to get into the platform. I love it. This is the typical growth hacking that, uh, uh, I love seeing, uh, it reminds me a bit of like stories that we all know, like Airbnb that, you know, used, uh, um, what was that? The Craigslist, right? To script information, uh, rep- yeah. and, you know, repurpose things there and, a lot of stories of company that started, it started with a growth hack that because you might not have the money, you might not have the right channels, you might not have an audience. And also what I like about this story, it is that you were able to find a community, geolocated in a certain area, and you asked them feedback. And what I say all the time it is that the power of community online can be like fantastic. They can give you unfiltered commenting like and feedback right on something. So yeah. that was a smart move, right? Because it's the people that you want to target and ask them like, hey, without any any filters, uh, let us know, right? Exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, we, we, we purposefully and intentfully made that decision of not going in saying, hey, we're the founders, you know, mm-hmm. we're, the, mm-hmm. we're the company. It's like, we just found this website. What do you think of it? Yeah. Um, really gives that kind of unbiased feedback entirely. Hey, quick break. This podcast is hosted by the Influencer Marketing Factory. We are an influencer marketing agency that helps brands and companies engage with Gen Z and millennials on social media. We take care of influencer identification, storytelling, creativity, negotiation, contracting, campaign management, error analysis, in-depth reporting, code and boosting, and much, much more. Are you interested in learning more? You can find us at theinfluencermarketingfactory.com or you can Google The Influencer Marketing Factory. And uh, before you know, that we continue more on the side of, you know, influencer marketing and, you know, content creators and online personas, right? Because, uh, you know, uh, that's what I ask on this podcast, you know, being about, you know, influencer marketing, the creator economy and so on. But before we go on that one, I wanted to ask you, was it then, you know, uh, some part of like a moment uh, from, because you told me about the, you know, the origins, a bit of the beginning. Was there, there a moment uh, where you started realizing that uh, you didn't just have any more like free signups, uh, but actually this was growing? And uh, like, is there a point of inflection like, in terms of like traction that you can recall? Or maybe there is not a moment, but uh, a phase of your business where you started seeing growing in a pretty good way? Yeah, I think um, we, when we first started, actually ran... Um, basically a hybrid a hybrid pool boy company right we were kind of like hey we're a smart pool boy company that uses this product 
Mm-hmm. And so we we kind of did a dual strategy between Nextdoor and Craigslist in selling selling the product, utilizing a service. Um, honestly, I, I think I remember the phase at which we hit that inflection point of where, you know, Paul, I think Paul Graham says, do do unscalable things first, right? Versus, mm-hmm. you know, figuring out scaling. Yeah. There was a point where where the unscalable thing was just way too heavy. I think we had like 50 pools and we had hired, we were literally turning into a pool guy company versus building the robot because we were just, people were so interested in, in, in this kind of smart service that uh, we were spending more time on hiring pool guys or, you know, hiring one or two guys with the truck and managing the route mm-hmm. than actually um, building the product. And so at that point in time, we were like, hey, we need to, you know, kind of pause this pool guy thing for a little bit. Um, actually put some resources on building a stable product that we know is going to work and then basically redeploy it with, you know, B2C doing a Kickstarter campaign. We had multiple different ways that we were going to potentially do that. But um, that I think would be like the inflection point of when that unscalable thing became really heavy for us to manage. Okay. No, it, it, it makes sense, right? Like you, uh, uh, better when like not to start in a way where you do things like manually, right? At the beginning, then you start scaling up a bit more. Um, and you know, too many times I see like, you know, startups or companies that they try to go in this scale mode from the beginning, even before like seeing actually if the product is good, that if people love it and so on. So yeah, like, but then, yeah, you get to a moment where you have to decide and be like, okay, this is now impossible to manage. It's time consuming, you know, uh, difficult to really, and also like for the, you know, the journey and where do you want to go, right? You can be the you know, the service or it can be a product or an hybrid, you know, and so on. So, and yeah. from the moment you, then, then is when you started to focus more on the product, I guess, right? Uh, as, or, or was still at that time a hybrid for you? No, no, that's, that's when we really started to focus on the product. We had hired engineers and then, you know, starts the Sutro chapter of like, how do you manufacture a product at scale, mm-hmm. right? How do you, how do you injection mold plastics and what kind of sensor are we going to use and what's the Wi-Fi connectivity? All of those questions, then you know the complex questions of building hardware, then started at that kind of chapter. And how did you manage that? Like, uh, what is a typical process for you? Like, uh, did you have to find new uh, like factories, uh, new new ways to like how? Just like tell me a bit more about that because I really don't know anything. So it would be interesting to understand what is the process behind that from going to one to ten, ten to. I don't know how many units now you're selling, but I, I guess a lot. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have uh, multiple tens of thousands out of units out there in the market. Um, it's an it's an interesting story because they say they say hardware is hard, right? And it mm-hmm. it truly is because if you look at a software company, you can have engineers that deploy on just you know you, your your speed to iteration is a lot quicker than you are in hardware because you're physically mm-hmm. making something. Yeah. Um, so when we first started looking at the actual product of, of how to build a sensor, the easiest thing to do is take something off the shelf, right? If an existing sensor is on there on the market, um, can you put a Wi-Fi chip on top and then build an entire experience on the application side mm-hmm. to you know make it really, really nice so users can, in, can interface and interact with it? The off-the-shelf sensors that are there, um, I won't go into the science, but it very... Very simply, it begins to drift over time, right? And so if you're looking at water chemistry, and let's say that you need to conduct an action based off of the the water parameter, like for example, your chlorine is low, right? If your chlorine is low, you need to put more chlorine into your water. But if that value of low is moving, 
you have a kind of moving data point that you don't know where and how to actually put the chemicals inside to really treat your water. Um, and those require the user to actually calibrate, recalibrate the unit. So we ended up deploying about a hundred of these off the shelf sensors in the market and very quickly realized the one piece of feedback was people having problems with the calibration and the data quality because it was drifting. So we had to go back to the, to the kind of drawing book. And we ended up actually developing a sensor from scratch, which was really painful, you know, really, really tiring, took a lot of time um, and ended up, you know, extending our timeline against our competitors. Um, but the beauty of it was, was that when we did finally get to market, we had the only sensor on the market that actually works. Um, so now we have a bigger problem because now we have to basically manufacture a custom sensor that we built from scratch. Um, and that process has its own, you know, ups and downs, but the cliff notes on it is we spent about 30 to 40% of our time in Shenzhen, China. Um, we found an amazing partner called Shenzhen Valley Ventures, um, who's kind of a contract manufacturer or kind of, you can think of them as like an aggregator because okay. not one factory can make everything right. Every single product has components that come around from around China, from around Europe, you know, the, uh, the LTE or the Wi-Fi chip comes from a different company. And so they are kind of this contract manufacturer that sources vendors, brings all those parts to their factory, and then assembles the product for us with a certain quality limit, and then ships it across the Pacific to Los Angeles. Um, and yeah, that's just making the product, right? Now you have software that lives on the product, so you need something called firmware. Um, the firmware is the operating system of the robot, um, then we have to build and stand up the entire cloud side of things of how do you process this complex information on a sensor that we have custom designed. And then how do you distill everything to make it really, really, really simple. So on the app side, if you're, you know, Joe that lives in Austin, Texas, and you have a swimming pool in your backyard, um, you can very quickly look at your app and know what to do because you're busy and you care about a blue pool, not about some, you know, distinct chlorine or pH measurements. And so uh, that's kind of the uh, cliff notes on, on on how to manufacture a product. It's it's crazy and also interesting to see the behind the scene. What I, what I try to put on the podcast all the time is uh, giving a spotlight to the behind the scene of these, uh, you know, from you know content creators platforms that you know we had on the podcast to physical products that when you see them, you do not realize all the work right that is behind that. And that's uh, so. Thank you for going a bit more in detail there. And it's also interesting when you say about the Shenzhen, because I was talking with someone about the, the so-called Shenzhen speed, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, uh, it's, is that true, right? I guess that they have like a way to work that is uh, a bit faster, I would say, to maybe US factories sometimes, right? And and then if you need something, they they, they find a way, right? Maybe to to, to go on a, on a scale that is bigger just because Chinese population is is bigger, right? And, and then I think that they have a framework and methodologies uh, just on a different scale, right? Uh, I don't know if you noticed that work yeah. with them. Oh, no, no, in, entirely. And I think the, the the third piece I would add on there is that they're, um, they're vertically integrated, right? Mm -hmm. So like if you need the resistor, the really small resistor that sits on top of a electronic PCBA yeah. that then sits on top of your thing, you could drive, I don't know, 100 miles, 50 miles, and they'll find that part for you somewhere within the vicinity of, of, of Shenzhen. And if it's not... Um, they have established supply chains that they've built out for the last 20, 30 years to get that from Europe or from the US, whatever it might be. So it all shows up there in Shenzhen so they can manufacture it entirely. We discussed about the origins, how to scale. Uh, you started you know, with Nextdoor and so on. 
but I'm pretty sure that you use also like other channels, right? In the marketing mix. Uh, and the one, of course, that I wanted to ask you about, uh, that is the one that I think also our audience is um, mostly interested in. It is people that have influence, right? And mm -hmm. people that can make a difference in their community, in their, you know, uh, even sometimes, for example, specific for your product, uh, we're talking about a niche market on specific uh, geolocations, right? So how did you approach that on, let's say on the influencer marketing side or content creators, or even let's not call them like influencers, but just people that have a, have a following even on the offline world, right? Because we're talking about pools, right? Uh, so can you tell me about, about that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, we've, you know, made a few mistakes and I think we have, um, a bit of a, a bit of a success story now in kind of how to build this. Initially, we took the influencer playbook, right? Like go to a site like Upfluence or something like that, you know, pay them X amount of dollars and then search for Instagram accounts of people that have pools, right? I think one thing that we need to think about in, in Sutro as a product and, and the market that we cater to is the product primarily 70 to 80% of our market is in the Sun Belt, right? So it's California, Arizona, Texas, and Florida. Um, and... If you think about those four states, the demographic is very different, right? A, a Texan is very different than a Californian, which is very different than a Floridan. Mm -hmm. um, you have retirement communities in Arizona. Um, you have millennials that are newly getting married and Gen Xers that are worried about their kids getting in safe water. And then you kind of have this boomer and Gen X generation that had bought homes in the 80s and 90s, um, now have grandkids, probably did the pool themselves, but are now retiring. Right. So it's this weird kind of spectrum. There's no there's no one like magazine or one demographic. I can just say, hey, boom, I know that that particular person is going to buy Sutro because you're just wealthy and you have a swimming pool. That's kind of it. And you can be across the board if you have that. So when we first started targeting the um, upfluence and the influencers on on Instagram, that's the problem we came up with. Right. It was kind of like it like worked, but it didn't. Right. It like work, didn't work nine times out of ten. And so at we, what we ended up doing was actually reversing that strategy. And we went for a much more of a kind of micro-influencer route and community route, right? Those are kind of like the two pillars that we're looking at. Micro-influencers, we basically um, use our existing customers and reward them, right, through a kind of reward system of if they post content and they have a referral link, um, we see that actually working a lot, lot, lot better. Um, and interestingly enough, we will actually send Facebook ads that are top of funnel to people that are existing customers um, that have signed up for this kind of influencer thing because they can then comment on these Facebook ads on people that are top of funnel that don't know about Sutro. And it's funny because you get an existing customer that comes in, you know, it's a little opposite. You would think, hey, why are you sending top of funnel ads to a folk that to people that already have a Sutro? But they're your community that ends up supporting the top of funnel ad to help the new folks actually figure out what Sutro is. Um, and then the second thing that we've done is we're starting to do is build a Facebook community around um, a Facebook group around Sutro users. Um, one to solicit feedback, right? We want to always make sure we're in this kind of run of perpetual improvement. And we get that from just people being honest on the group. Um, we kind of have a, um, a character that we call Trey Golding, who's kind of our own character. Um, and he kind of sifts through the group almost as a concierge and helps different people with their problem that they have in the community. 
Um, and so those are kind of the uh, two two kind of ways that we're trying now to get our existing users on. And then the third piece that we're doing is we're actually, there's a few, um, not Instagram influencers, but actually YouTube influencers, like pool guys, uh, pool stores that have a decent Instagram or uh, YouTube following. And we just will send them a free product to basically review it, right? Those get pretty high viewership because people, um, especially now with YouTube and YouTube shorts are spending a lot of time on YouTube on finding and discovering new products. And so those are kind of the uh, three, the, the three-pronged strategy that we use on uh, getting influencers and user-generated content. And is there any of these channels that is working like the best for you? Or do you still think that a good mix uh, is the way to go? Like, are you seeing any, you know, is there maybe any of these channels that are bringing you mostly brand awareness uh, versus others that bring you the conversions? Uh, so because I'm pretty sure that, you know, a Facebook group with a community, it's something and a TikTok or a YouTube Shorts is something else. So how are you using uh, all the different things and again are you seeing any um any sort of like you no know, can you do like a benchmark is like like you know, a comparison with these, these channels um like are you calculating the different roi of of them and do you have like more or less an idea what is working what is i would say not working you know what i mean but maybe you still have to find some sort of like tricks in order to uh, optimize your conversions on those I think there's I think there's two ways to look at it, right? The first way is that it's a it's a holistic organism, right? It they, all the parts kind of work together in lockstep with each other, um, and I say that because if you look at the top of funnel Facebook ad, right, a first time Facebook ad, a first time TikTok ad, whatever that might be, um, the number one question that a new user has is is anybody using this and mm-hmm trust, right? They want to they want to make sure that they can have trust in buying this product because we also have a high price point. It's $500 with a $29 a month subscription. Um if you build a community through our internal community on Facebook and you get those people that are existing customers to prove to the new users that yes, you can trust this product. It works great. It helps me in doing XYZ things. What you end up doing is you now get advocates and influencers to actually help sell your product to first-time buyers. Um, and so that's kind of why I say, you know, the you get a retention angle on the con- on the community side because as you build a community, you basically lower returns because you're actually solving problems in real time by having that community. But then you also increase conversions by getting that community to do the heavy lifting for you on the Facebook ad side um, to get new people to purchase the product. So that's why it's a little bit of a... Mm-hmm swing or it's kind of, you know, an organism that kind of lives together. Um, and you, you have to build them both together because if you don't do the community, you just continue to spend money on Facebook. Um, and so this ends up like decreasing your spend, increasing ROI and increasing conversions. And so they're basically like advocates, right? For you, right? Like between advocates and ambassadors of your own brand that they go out and they are the social, like social proof and the, the trust that you said before. And yeah, I want to stress like the importance of in a community. The more I talk with brands and companies, uh, there is like nowadays there are also like you no know, chief community officer, right? What do they do? Yeah. They build Slack uh, channels, Discord channels, uh, uh, you know, Facebook groups, uh, any any places where people can really say what what they want, uh, and uh, you know, it's also a way just to get them. Like again, if you, tomorrow you have like a firmware update, uh, you can communicate it there. If you have a new color for the product, you can say that there, right? It's just a way to. Um, 
you know, like just just put everything in one place and drive traffic, right? To to yeah. to do things there. And actually, coming back full circle, it's our own next door community, right? It's our own built-in group of what we first started off with when we when we built Sutro. Exactly. At the beginning, you want to use someone else's audience, and then you want to own your own audience, right? At the beginning, you don't have like the money or the people to do it, and so you start on some other audiences. That happened back in the days with everything, like you know, Instagram put their logos and they start post posting on Facebook before it was acquired, right? And many others have done the same. TikTok also the same, you know, with the with the with the watermark. You used someone else's audience up until you can create your own, right? And, yeah. and also, I liked the idea of of touching on other, uh, you know, like clusters that might be around. So when we met, you told me that, for example, that was like, for me, it was like, oh, that's actually a great idea. And you told me about, you know, people that are like interested in barbecuing because usually you have a barbecue next to the pool. And so, mm -hmm. for example, that's also what uh, we recommend all the time. Do not look just at people that like pool right in their bio, but someone else that might be around that cluster of people and uh, and you might find something that they are still interested, right? But they might receive maybe less inquiries about that because they have something different. For example, we all the time advise, for example, if you have a beauty product, don't go only to beauty influencers. Go to lifestyle people, sports people. Because if you if you are gonna go to an athlete and it's like, okay, during my you know fitness exercise time, maybe I'm like this, but then when I go out, I put this makeup on, you know. Yeah you are getting a total different type of audience that might still be interested. And the same is for you, for example, for barbecuing, right? That yeah. might, the glass, the cluster go together, like somehow intersect with people having a pool, right? So is there is there any other people or cluster that you identified that worked well for you uh, that maybe at, at the beginning was like, oh, we didn't think about it, but then when it clicked, uh, it helped you out to find new audiences. So I, I think the way to structure that is through is, is kind of figuring out the user story, right? Like the user journey, um, not within your product, but like, let's take, for example, the Sutro story, right? People that buy a Sutro have a swimming pool. And if you kind of figure out like, why does a user, why does a person have a swimming pool? What do you think about when you have a swimming pool? You think about weekend parties, you know, you think about your high school date that you used to have and you used to hang out at the pool. You used to think, you know, if you're older, you might be sipping wine inside of a jacuzzi, reading a book. Um, all of these sort of images, you know, draw particular journeys and particular stories that then can blow out into an entire universe or an entire environment of additional products, right? And so one of that you just touched on was the was the barbecue side, mm -hmm. right? The other side is around like actual cooking, right? People, people love to like cook a steak. They love to like figure out the best rubs that they might have on their particular steak or their chicken that they're making. Um, you potentially think about games, right? People will always play games near a swimming pool. Um, music. There's always music playing at the swimming pool. Can you make a Spotify summer Sutro list that is, you know, the best song for each of our demographics of the millennials, Gen X and boomers um, with their particular style of music that they would enjoy listening to at a swimming pool during a barbecue party? Um, you know, is there um, safety things, right? People, millennials that have new kids want to make sure, you know, drowning is a big concern. Um, is there ways on clubbing or pairing with certain products that are uh, safety products in the backyard. Um, you get into like landscaping, right? People during different times of the year, if you're in the East Coast, a lot of your plants will freeze, right? Or they'll they'll die in the winter. If you're in the Southwest, um, you have an evergreen backyard. Um, what plants look best around your swimming pool? What kind of landscaping things do you have? 
um, what kind of furniture would you buy? Do you want a lounge chair? Do you want to buy chairs? You know, um, so if you kind of just step back from a second from your product from Sutro, and you say, why do people have a pool? What do they look at? What do they do around that swimming pool? It you can sit in front of a whiteboard. And I can I can go on for you know hours of what people do around a swimming pool, and that that's where you can then start tapping into other influencers around barbecues or drinks or steaks or rubs that uh, very clearly could be tangential to the swimming pool market. And I like this for two reasons. One, you identify your persona, and that's something that sometimes still uh, certain brands and companies, uh, I think that they do the mistake that they think that they know their customer and they don't. They only look at this laser focus on one type of persona, but as you said before in your case, uh, could be anyone because back in the days only maybe certain older people were able to afford it and nowadays especially in you know california and la area there are a lot of youtubers uh, that are making millions uh, and they have a really good mansion with pool yeah. right they are young so as you said it's difficult to so doing a step back helicopteral view and understand who is your personas and every other cluster around it's it's a great idea and also like the the idea that you can do collaborations and partnerships that's why a lot of brands nowadays they come out with a new product, maybe a drop collection that is in collaboration with. It's, it's actually smart because you're getting two different audiences. They might not know each other's, but they get intercepted with a product that might work for both, right? So that yeah. they are getting like, you know, pool and the kitchen, pool and games, pool and safety, right? There are a lot of opportunities out there. So that, that is quite a, I think, a smart move there. And uh, um Rav, is there anything else uh, that uh, excites you lately? It could be in in, in uh, your industry or more on the marketing side. Uh, anything that you're following uh, that uh, make you like, yeah, I'm super excited about like this in the future. Is there anything that comes to your mind that you want to just to share with us? Yeah, this this might be cliche because I think everybody's talking about it, but it, it would be chat GPT and AI. Mm -hmm. You know, I think people are using it for flooding, flooding Google with a bunch of SEO content. But what yeah. we really like it for is a sidekick for brainstorming, right? Like keep it keep it as an external team member that you can just ask it and prompt it things and it returns back more ideas than you would generally have in a group. Um, and so we kind of use it as like, you know, the teammate, Sutra teammate X. Um, we use it for engineering, we use it for, you know, marketing. And so it's been it's been really, really helpful to use ChatGPT for, for that side. Um, and then I think, sorry, go ahead. No, sorry, I was interested in knowing the engineering side. Can you tell me an example? Because I saw it mostly for like ideas like give me 10 blog titles, blah, blah, blah. How do you use it for engineer? Uh, you can actually, ChatGPT has like an entire development side of it as well. And it uses GitHub as like its, um, as its seed base. Uh, okay. um, and so you can use it for development. We also just, you know, ask it to give us um, ideas from also a product standpoint, from engineering, right? Of like, Give me, give me an app idea that, you know, uses a water chemistry monitor and what would people want to know about it, right? As a kind of stupid example. But um, that will start to get the development and product team thinking about particular permutations of how we can build a user experience around the application as well. So not only for actual development, like actual code writing, but product definition and product actual implementation as well. Interesting. I mean, I've been talking with many people and everyone is using somehow. Um, and majority of people are telling me like it's it's in addition, right, and not really a, a replacement. Do, do you feel yeah. the same also in for your company? Oh, entirely. It's 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 in addition. It's not in replacement. Um, we use it when we're kind of blocked to just restart the engine again, so we can go back to kind of work and re-envision, re-strategize, um, come up with more permutations of things. Fantastic. 
uh, well, we discussed about, you know, your company, how it grew, uh, again, you know, fascinating and, and loved when I, when I hear stories about little growth hack here and there, <laughs> then it's scale, right? And then it's, 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 uh, it's still growing, right? And then you're using, you know, AI to understand a bit more. And then, then you created your own, uh, you know, like sensors and everything, like a lot of things happen, right? And, and in how many years is this? I didn't ask you at the beginning. Uh, it's been seven years. Seven years. Amazing. Yeah. So. Uh, that's uh, that has been quite a journey, I would say, right? <laughs> Definitely, as getting close to a decade. Yeah, as many entrepreneurs that, uh, and I also appreciate that you shared a bit more about the behind the scene. Again, whenever I can on this podcast, it is to really show what it happens. You know, uh, there are many items, many things uh, that happens that you don't really see, that are time consuming. Uh, you put a lot of money in. You know, like there is effort, uh, and and especially in a physical product like you have to all the time think about what is the next update right uh, uh, how can how can we improve it right so that's why going back to the to the community side i think it's uh, it's interesting to see that community do not have to exist only for digital products because everyone maybe think about uh, yeah i am on a platform of course i have a community on slack but in this case also you're saying i have a physical product and still i have an online community where people can share right entirely you know, you know feedback and so on yep yeah Fantastic. Well, Ravi, thank you so much for joining me today. It was a really interesting conversation. Uh, and I, you know, uh, wish you best of luck for the next years to come. Because again, seven could be a lot for other people. It's like, hey, it's just the <laughs> beginning, you know. So, yeah. uh, you know, best best of luck to, to that. Thank you again for joining me. And this was the Influence Factor by the Influencer Marketing Factory. And I'm going to see, uh, see you uh, next week. Mm-hmm.